Bonjour. Is the internet to English? Yes, this week on Download This Show, terms like Wi-Fi and eSports all have their roots in the English language. But given how wide-reaching the web is, should it not reflect more languages? Plus, why one major tech company has to pay an Australian politician in excess of $700,000. Also on the show, one of the most important people in the life of Facebook quits and why Google wants to see your skin differently. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, Amy Bainbridge, uh, ABC Consumer Affairs reporter. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thank you very much. And Michael A. Cowling. I'm putting the A in there, Michael, Associate Professor from Central Queensland University. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. What does the A actually stand for? It's Alan, and it's because there's another famous Michael Cowling, but I won't mention him because then he'll get extra Google hits, and we don't want that. Definitely not. Uh, but special shout out to the Mark Fennell, who's the Chief of Police. No, the Chief of the Fire Department in Colorado Springs. That's right. Definitely not Googling himself in his spare time. Anyway, Facebook news this week, Amy. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg, who, of course, was hugely instrumental in shaping the modern behemoth that is Meta, of course, the company that owns Facebook, has decided to step down as Chief Operating Officer. What do you reckon her legacy is going to be, Amy? Such a good question. I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure how kindly history will treat this period in our lives and not necessarily Cheryl Sandberg per se, but how I guess we've moved this this social media presence into something that's essentially monetized from from personal data. And and Sheryl Sandberg is not solely responsible for that, but she certainly had a big part in it. You know, she spent 14 years at Facebook. Um, you know, she said she only ever expected to, to spend five years there. When she leaves, the latest estimate from the Forbes 2021 rich list is that she is worth $1.7 billion US dollars. Um, she... <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an amount of money where I hear it. I just, all I can do is like instinctively laugh. Like that's, that's like a made up number. Isn't it? And, you know, she, she was at the company over just a whole, you know, so many scandals, you know, Cambridge Analytica, you know, being probably the, one of the, the most well-known ones. But we also know a lot about her personal journey. Um, she's put a couple of books out. Her husband died suddenly in an accident. She's kind of like this whole brand that's far bigger than just her profile at Meta. Um, but yeah, there certainly has been a lot of things over the years. And, you know, her, her general approach has been when there's been problems that, you know, is typically being to deny, deflect, apologise and then promise to do better. Mm. Um, I, I think the classic at the moment, combo, that one. Yeah, look, we've seen politicians do that, but this is just this organisation that um, even if you're not on any of their, their social media platforms, you'll know somebody who is, right? It's had such a huge influence over... Um, you know, public discourse, and then even just the way we we interact online, and I think it will be over time. This this period, I'm not sure how kindly it will reflect on on her legacy, but you know, I guess it's an open question. Michael, 14 years of Sheryl Sandberg. In that time, uh, Facebook has stopped being Facebook. Facebook is now Meta, which includes obviously Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and a suite of other services. How different was the company that she arrived at to the company that she walks out of? Well, I mean, if, we, if you've seen the movie Social Network, you'll know how things started with Mark 
Zuckerberg in a, in a room at Harvard creating this idea originally for college students and then eventually for the rest of the world. And, and since then, I think it's grown, as you say, from a social networking company to something that's much bigger. And in the last couple of years, they've positioned themselves to have more than just a social networking presence. And, and uh, in particular for, for me, the, the VR part is a lot of what they're doing and this idea of moving towards the metaverse. And of course, that's why they changed their name last year to Meta, to broaden that idea. But I wonder whether with with, uh, Sheryl Sandberg leaving, I I do worry whether or not it may be uh, a case of the adults leaving the room a little bit. And uh, that's a little bit concerning, as uh, Amy said, because Sheryl already has sort of dealt with quite a few controversies with Facebook over the last 14 years. 14 years is a good innings, Amy, isn't it? But I, I guess the, the thing that I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around is is how much does a person like Sheryl Sandberg actually shape a, a company like that? You know, as chief operating officer, it's a, it's a hugely important and central role in the life of Facebook slash meta. I'm going to call it Facebook slash meta. It's, it's simple that way. Um, <laughs> more syllables, simple concept. Um, so I, I, I think what I'm trying to drill down on a little bit is is exactly how much it has changed uh, and, and what differences we can expect coming out the other end. Yeah, well, as Michael referred to, I mean, she um, she was referred to as the adult in the room. And this is sort of, I guess, a story that's a well-trodden path that there were these young guys setting up this huge, um, this, what was to become a huge company. And she was in there after a really successful career in her own right. You know, she previously worked at Google before she joined Facebook and she really led that transformation of Google as a search engine into the world's leading digital advertising business. And then after she took up the role at Facebook, I've got some figures here for you, which are pretty mind-boggling. The advertising sales, according to The Guardian, exploded from $777 million US in 2009 to $117 billion in 2021. So, you know, they're reaching a market valuation now of a trillion dollars and, of course, along the way, acquired Instagram and, and WhatsApp. But, you know, this this huge expansion, they had a couple of hundred employees to more than 77,000 today. So, and, and Meta now sits as the second leading digital advertising business behind Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. So, yeah, where to from here? I mean, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, we saw her testifying, um, you know, in the US about how the company has handled various, um, you know, controversies over the years. She certainly was a very strong performer, a very mature performer. She's well liked, you know, by the media because she's, you know, of who she is. She has got a really strong personal story. Um, they have named a successor uh, of a chief operating officer, but I think she will be a big loss. You can't have someone like her leave a company and, and there not be some sort of loss. But um, as Michael alluded to, it's it's kind of this pivotal time now where we're talking about the metaverse and, yeah, what happens to this and the checks and balances with her gone? Michael, it's undeniable that Sheryl Sandberg's legacy could probably be summed up in one word, which is scale. She scaled up massively Google and she scaled up massively Facebook. The question I guess now is, is what is the next challenge facing Meta slash Facebook? Like what, what are the, 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 you know, they still have to operate as a company. This isn't purely just an ethical question. It's also a business question. What is the next challenge facing that organisation, which does have its, um, you know, for lack of its better, a better word, tendrils in the lives of billions of people? 
That is the question. But the, the, the interesting thing I think Meta has been doing, and I think even as outsiders we've seen them doing, it is is trying to diversify. I think even Meta realised over the years that, that social networking and becoming the number one social network across the world was great um, and was monetizable. And, and Sheryl Sandberg had a lot to do with monetizing that, in particular with regards to ads. But at a certain point, there's, there's a, a level of market saturation and you have to diversify. And they started by buying Instagram and then they bought WhatsApp and Instagram's photo sharing and WhatsApp is messaging. So they're close to social networking. But then I think, again, they've, they've pushed towards VR and they've said, we need to do something that is quite different than what we were doing previously, diversify, change what we're doing. And, and that ultimately led to them changing the name of the company. And so we had this situation where in the next let's say, five or ten years, Facebook, I think, needs to say, okay, well, it's great that we're in social networking and that we're the number one social network, but how can we diversify our offering and make ourselves a little more meaningful? And when you look at it, uh, Google did something similar recently as well, so it's not an unusual circumstance for these big tech behemoths to be in. Mm. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week, ABC Consumer Affairs reporter Amy Bainbridge and Michael A. Cowling, Associate Professor at Central Queensland University. Interesting, like staying with the big behemoths, uh, Google has been ordered to pay the former New South Wales Deputy Premier, John Barillaro, more than $700,000. But why, Amy? What happened here? Yeah, it's such an interesting case, obviously played out um, through the courts um, over the past, you know, 12 to 18 months. But this was in reference to some videos that were published on YouTube in 2020 by comedian Jordan Shanks, who's better known as Friendly Geordies. Um, John Barillaro, former Deputy Premier in New South Wales, um, said that he had repeatedly asked Google, which owns YouTube, the platform that these these videos were posted on to delete the videos, but the company did nothing. Um, as you said, um, more than $700,000, it was $715,000 in damages um, for Mr Barillaro. Normally, the defamation damages cap sits at, at $425,000. So it's gone beyond that. Um, you know, it's it's not a new thing that, that in Australia publishers are liable for content that they host. That's not kind of a new thing. I guess what it is at this stage, it's, this is kind of a, a situation where the conduct of Google in the face of needing help by Mr Barillaro to get rid of these videos, which he has found deeply distressing and said that, you know, they were a large part to do with him stepping away from politics, is how they acted after that and how they also acted during the court case as well and the kind of, um, I guess, arguments that they put forward um, in the judgment, you know, the the um, the justice Stephen Rares was quite um, critical of the way that Google behaved through this. Um, it's very sharp those comments that he made. They're they're really really sharp. Yeah, that's right. It's it's it was it, yeah a very a, a victory I guess for John Barillaro, but he calls it a victory for the little people. I guess the reality is that um, most people in this situation wouldn't have the money or wherewithal to, to launch some sort of, you know, court case against it. But it does draw a line in the sand. I know that we're talking about this being a huge amount of money, but I do wonder really um, how seriously a company like Google would take 715000 Australian dollars. Well, I'm interested, I guess, also in the precedent that it sets a little bit. I mean, so just for, for some wider context, um, 
Barilaro settled a federal court case against Shanks, the comedian in question, in sort of November last year. And that kind of resolved in Friendly Geordie's giving an apology, editing the video. So in some sense, that part of that component of the of the case had been resolved. I think the fact that YouTube, I mean, YouTube and Google have an enormous surface area, right? There's an absolute, it's in, it would be impossible to to consume all of YouTube, right? Let alone moderate all of it. So they, I think what I find most curious about this, Michael, is that it, it represents a really interesting challenge for them, right? This isn't the first or the last time this is going to happen. Um, but the fact that they had to pay out or that they were, you know, ordered to pay out, you know, yes, I agree. Seven hundred thousand dollars is is you know to to most of us it's a, it's a lot of money, but in the context of Google, probably not. But I, I wonder what it what it I wonder what it promises for the future of Google, um, Michael. Exactly right, and uh, it, that the precedent is is a very legal word, but it is it is in in some ways a, a, an evidence that that somebody can take an uh, organisation to court that is not the organisation that actually defamed them and and the, the, uh, the argument that he settled with shanks and but then took Google to court for keeping the the videos up is is really interesting and does set that precedent and makes you wonder what's going to happen in the future and whilst it's hard to feel for big companies like Google in some ways you do feel for Google or Facebook or these companies that have to moderate this massive amount this free form content that is up there forever and how do they how do they deal with that do they keep it all free do they make every Everything available and say, well, it's out of our hands, or do they do they try to moderate that content? And obviously, this case demonstrates that they that they have some responsibility. At least this case suggested they have some responsibility to moderate that content. Mm. What do you think the impact is going to be, Amy? Like, what what happens next in terms of the way Google, the position that this puts Google and uh, YouTube in? I do wonder what it means in a practical sense because we do know that in a lot of these. Um, big platforms, the the kind of content can be not monitored by real human beings. I mean, that's been one of the, the criticisms, I guess, just jumping back to meta in the past is that um, some of the, the monitoring has been just by an algorithm and not a real person actually seeing what's going on and therefore things stay up online far too long. I wonder internally um, at Google whether they are thinking about how they go about moderating or just monitoring you know, the platforms and what's going up. I mean, you know, so many videos are posted, so much content all the time. It's a very, it's a very, very difficult thing to monitor. But also at some point you're like, well, this, you're a victim of your own success or do you do something about it? And uh, I think that's, you know, the, the strongest thing about this case is that, you know, that the fine might not be that big, but it does sort of, as I said earlier, draw a line in the sand about what's acceptable, at least in an Australian context. And also, I mean, these these companies do need to think about the impact that they are having on people. You know, um, John Barilaro said he received, you know, thousands of hateful and disturbing social media posts after some of the, the videos. This is a very real human impact we're talking about. It's not just about the dollars. So these are pretty big questions for the company. And it will be interesting to see how they respond. I, I don't think they've actually made, to my knowledge at this stage, a, a sort of a, a full statement publicly about this court case. Yeah, I mean, anybody that's been on the receiving end of that kind of online height from, well, from anybody, but uh, from Friendly Geordies or anybody of that kind will tell you that it's a it's a horrific experience. I think I'm fascinated to know how other YouTubers like Friendly Geordies 
change or if they change at all, Michael? I mean, I think that's a really interesting question because, um, you know, he he's enormously popular um, and the, he's influential. And I'd be interested to know whether there's likely to be a change in how YouTubers like Friendly Geordies actually behave online. We've seen other YouTubers get into controversies and it, it's not dissimilar to what we were talking about before. You apologise, you, you record an apology video, you say you're not going to do it again, you edit the videos and then you hope that everybody forgets and you continue <laughs> to do what you were doing before. Uh, uh, PewDiePie is a great example of a YouTuber that has had a couple of controversies. Logan Paul, Jake Paul have had similar controversies and they've, they've apologised, they've taken the videos down, but then largely I think they've continued with their brand the way it was. Can you, can you see, in, in light of cases like this, and this certainly isn't unique, there's been some similar things like this around the world, can you see any modulating in, in, in sort of behaviour? Because it isn't the Wild West anymore, right? When you can bring cases like this, when you're on a massive platform owned by, by Google, it's not the Wild West that it once was. So can, is there any identifiable change you can see at all? Look, I think ultimately uh, the the big media companies are probably going to have to deal with it. Google and and Facebook, who we mentioned before, they're going to have to think a little bit more about these this kind of media. I think they're going to have to realise that this kind of media is there forever. <laughs> And uh, I think that's a massive difference for this particular type of media. And that's raised in this court case. It's that the videos were still there. They were still causing him issues uh, a long time after they'd been originally recorded, even after they'd been edited. And so I, I could see that, that Google and Facebook get much more aggressive about taking those kinds of things down if there's even a sniff of something that may be a little bit a uh, little bit scary but then of course that comes back to the the freedom argument as well which as you said is that for a long time they've argued we're the wild west and we don't control the content and are they willing to change that yeah there culture? was a there was a good sort of like 15 to 20 years where both facebook and google sort of tried this argument that like we're not publishers we're like a platform and i feel like amy the <laughs> the the just the the trying to put a, a brick wall between those two concepts that brick wall has crumbled by now, surely. Oh, absolutely. Gone. <laughs> absolutely demolished, yeah. I mean, that that was a, a popular argument trotted out, um, you know, over over many years, but uh, it certainly doesn't wash anymore, and this has very much underlined that, I think. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, also worth saying that, you know, this might not be quite over yet either because um, Google and and Mr Shanks have both been, been referred to um, the Principal Registrar of the Court for Potential Contempt relating to another video. Um, so it's kind of like this, it's just going to, it'd be interesting to see, I guess, where this ends up and perhaps Google will reserve their, their public response, which may be a very short statement, by the way, until it's completely... Um, you know, wrapped up, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not great. And you're right. I mean, you can't hide behind any kind of defence that they're, they're not the actual content maker or a real publisher anymore. It simply doesn't wash. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media technology and culture. Staying in the realm of Google, Google's unveiled um, a diverse scale of skin tones. Now, why would they do this? Well, there's long been accusations that as AI becomes an increasing part of our lives, that it has inherited some of our biases as human beings. And you see all kinds of unusual stories where predictive policing, for example, will often um, enact biases around skin tone. Michael, tell me a little bit about this skin tone that they've uh, developed for their artificial intelligence system. What exactly is it? So it's called the Monk skin tone scale and it replaces, I guess, replaces a very popular skin tone scale which was called the Fitzpatrick 
scale. And the Fitzpatrick scale has been used for, for a long time and it was predominantly used to identify people that were more uh, eligible to be burnt, right? So you look, use the Fitz, Fitzpatrick scale to work out if you can go out in the sun or not and how long you can go for. But what we started doing with the Fitzpatrick scale once we got these artificial intelligence systems that were identifying individuals, we used the Fitzpatrick scale to identify uh, a particular individual and to, to do artificial intelligence style things. And they really I think Google realised that that scale was fairly limited in that it had a, as you suggested, a large proportion of, of, of white skin tones and not so many of the darker skin tones. And that may reflect a bias, uh, but Google decided to do something about it by broadening out those skin tones to include those, uh, those darker skin tones as well. So if you look at the two, you'll see that the monk skin tone is a wider, a uh, skin tone scale is a wider scale with many more tones on those, on the darker side. So able to identify more accurately those, those ethnicities that are not necessarily Caucasian. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So the Fitzpatrick scale sort of, um, it kind of betrays its original purpose, right? Because I think four out of the different categories for white skin, well, four out of the six categories were basically white skin, right? Were the people that most at risk of being burnt, right? It can kind of see the origins of it in play there. Are there other ways in which this new scale, the monk scale is different, Amy? Um, yeah, look, yeah, the, the the original Fitzpatrick, of course, yeah, really looking very much at shades of white. Um, this is far more, far greater range. And as preparation for this podcast, I, you know, looked, watched a couple of news reports on this and they, they really go around and interview people um, about what their frustrations have been. And, and typically it is that a wide enough variety of skin tones simply aren't represented. Now, there's you can uh, there's you can see that that is true for for all of the media, but it must be particularly frustrating for people who are just using, say, um, Google products for everyday um, everyday things that you do. So, so I guess there's there's a whole range of ways that this is going to be applied. Um, Dr. Monk has said that he's really been working to address colorism and color bias. And, you know, still even 10 shades isn't going to capture anyone, but if, uh, sorry, still even 10 shades isn't going to capture the absolute diversity of the population. But um, at least then he says it, you know, it gives a, a better and broader starting point. But it, it means that... Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of, of products that we'll use online that'll, that potentially this will be rolled out. So if you go online and search for a beauty tutorial, um, whereas typically it might have just brought up a, a white person, instead there's going to be a range of options, you know, for makeup searches, things like that. Um, as a big application for um, photo filters, um, which Google says are designed to work better when used on images of darker skin, um, you know, Part of the problem has been that in in photos, some people um, might look well lit while others don't. So there's a clear bias there. So that's the kind of thing that they're trying to attack. And the other thing is that a lot of these products, you know, um, have in the past come out of Silicon Valley. And rightly or wrongly, the perception is that Silicon Valley is represented by a lot of you know, white men working in technology. So I think this is the industry really trying to catch up with reality, which is not that at all. Michael, what are the sorts of things um, that you think they're going to use this scale for that they could not have been able to do before? Are there, are there new opportunities that this scale actually presents? 
Well, I think Amy's correct. We, I think we don't realise how much artificial intelligence goes into our camera system these days. And so when you're taking a good photo these days, it's not only about the optics in the actual device, but there's also a, a whole lot of computational photography going on as well. So that's where the computer takes the, or the phone, takes the image and, and, and manipulates and adjusts the image in order to, to make things look better. And, and a good example of that is, is night mode or low light mode, where you take a photograph and it looks like it was taken in full daylight when it was actually taken in the dark or in, in, in an evening. And of course, what happens there is that it's it's lightening very intelligently to try and make it look like it's daytime. And with this skin tone, it should theoretically be able to identify more clearly uh, people with different skin tones that are not skin tones and, and lighten them appropriately. And, and Amy highlighted, for example, the idea where you have a photo with people from mixed races, white and, and black and various other colours. And what you want to do is you want to lighten those as accurately as possible, where with the Fitzpatrick tone, you may have ended up with the, the white people looking better and the, the darker people looking overblown. And the hope is that with the monk scale, we'll have a more consistent result. So a better artificial intelligence result, which for us as end users means that we end up with better photos that look more realistic. I must say the, um, the, the intelligent cameras on phones are really great, but because of my skin tone, I always, it always adjusts me and the entire photo to look completely orange. I, it's just a strange, I don't know why it does it, but I, I took a photo of my wife who, who's, who's white and, and it's like, why does the color look more normal with you? And then I turned around and took a picture of me and went, why is it orange? And I've noticed it over the years, but I think maybe you might have, I think what you were saying earlier might be a bit of a doorway into that, Michael, because it's, it. it's trying to correct, which is, you know, obviously great and everything, but if you've got multiple skin tones, it can actually be quite hard for the, the phone to kind of adjust in, in camera. Exactly right. I think we've cracked it, Mark. That's exactly what's going on. So you'll have to try the new Monk scale and see if it works better for you, makes you a little bit less like an Oompa Loompa. That would be lovely. <laughs> download this show is what you're listening to. Uh, we've got one story left. Uh, interesting story out of France, Amy. Um, France's language watchdog has told government officials to use French gaming terms instead of English ones. So terms like esports and streamer, they're like, no, 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 no. We have French, we use French. And it does raise this interesting point, which is a lot of the internet, particularly internet that's written in our sort of um, alphabet, is very English centric. And perhaps, Amy, is it too English centric? I'm probably not the right person to ask, but <laughs> given I don't speak French. But yeah, I mean, I mean, you'd have to say yes. I was really right? hoping I mean... you burst out some French. I'm a bit dis- Michael, do you speak oh. French? I don't know. I was going to ask you, Mark. Do no. you speak French? No, Can you say it. any of these terms in French? No. Do you note how I very selectively, very selectively didn't? Because I don't want to mangle it because lots of people I'm sure listening to this do speak French and they don't want to hear me mess it up. We do know, of course, that, that um, obviously much of the internet uh, is in English, but, but there is a lot of it that isn't in English too, and perhaps we don't necessarily have visibility into that, Amy. Absolutely. And I just love this. It's just, I love this about the French is that they just take a strong position on something and just really go for it. So basically, you know, they've, they've told, um, the language watchdog has officially told government officials to use French gaming terms. Okay, fine. But of course, they, they're copying some criticism about that. Um, but the claim is that these anglicisms are a barrier to understanding. Um, but, uh, yeah, gamers aren't happy, of course, because, you know, I think you, you need to remember that um, gaming is a, you know, trans-boundary sport, right? You're connecting all over the world, not just with someone in your own in your own country. Yeah, look, it, it, I, I can understand as well the, the idea that you're trying to resist the anglicisation of of the language, right? Because when you think about it, these new terms are created uh, not 
necessarily exclusively, but often by by English speaking countries, and so they they create English terms. And what happens is there becomes a new term that is that doesn't have a local language equivalent. And I can see over time those terms eroding away the the language. And so I think the French are trying to take it back and say, well, what is the French equivalent to the term esports? And let's maybe try and use that as well in, instead, because we want to keep French in our language. Uh, the problem, of course, is that uh, that these terms have a, a life of their own, and and I think trying to force people to use new terms and new ideas is is fraught with difficulty. I guess we'll only find out. Thank you both so much for joining me on the show. We are out of time. Michael A. Cowling from Central Queensland University. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. And Amy Bainbridge, ABC Consumer Affairs reporter. Pleasure as always. Thank you so much for having me. And with that, I shall leave you. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever of the podcasting apps you choose to peruse. My name's Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show.